This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Spirit of Leadership, Liberating the Leader in Each of Us by Harrison Owen in 1999. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 4. Leadership Lessons from the Disenfranchised Women The prototypical disenfranchised group is women. For whatever reasons, and we are now beginning to understand some of them, women have been seen by men and often by themselves as on the fringes and certainly not in charge. Quote, making generalizations about women, particularly if you happen to be a man, is dangerous. So it is essential to clarify the basis from which I speak and my perceived right for doing so. I speak as a man observing women in my part of the world. That my observations may be warped and biased is a given. As for my right to speak, I take it as true that all humans are both masculine and feminine. As I have come to explore my own feminine aspect, I find that disenfranchised women is not simply a phenomenon of the ex external world. She exists in me as well, end quote. The stereotypical view of women, as I was growing up, is captured exquisitely in the song from My Fair Lady, in which Henry Higgins, the archetype of all male chauvinists, wonders, why can't a woman be more like a man? Women, it seemed, were bereft of logic and were incapable of making plans or following them through. To the extent that they had a use at all, except as playthings for men, it was to be mothers and caretakers of children. Men, after all, were in charge of the world and the girls were left to girlish things. How we got to the sorry state represented by this stereotype is something for the psychologists and anthropologists to puzzle through. But that we were there, and still are in many ways, seems beyond dispute. Given such a view of, woman, of women, the resulting deprivation and sheer loss of, a, loss of available human potential is inevitable and nothing short of catastrophic. Fortunately, there has been something of, somewhat of a turn, and this turn seems to be accelerating as more and more women assume their rightful position in society. Even as the corporate glass ceiling seems to be giving a bit, although a number of my women friends have found assent to the executive suite to be a Pyrrhic victory, and subsequently have gone on to create their own fulfillment. That is the corporate loss, but at least the critical element of choice has been established, no longer constrained by stereotypes. Yet, turn or not, the truly amazing fact remains that, even when the stereotype held its greatest power, women, or at least some women, managed quite well in the world. How they did that is the point of interest. To the best of my knowledge, the definitive study of effective female strategies under the conditions of radical disenfranchisement has yet to be undertaken. When it has been done, I think we will learn that not only, not, that not only have a remarkable group of women accomplished incredible things, but also, and most important for our present situation, we, by which I mean everybody in this transforming world, have a lot to learn from their efforts and strategies. Failing such a definitive study, I must rely on what some might term anecdotal evidence, a lifelong close encounter with a most remarkable group of women, my mother and her friends. My mother was born at the turn of the century into a world that was anything but hospitable to a bright, precocious young female. Going to school was allowed, but nobody expected it to amount to much, except as it might better prepare a young lady to assume her proper place in life as the wife of a proper gentleman. College, or anything beyond that, was generally speaking simply not done. 
my mother, it seemed, had not read that rule book. Not only did she go to college, but she can also continued on for a graduate degree in English. Degrees in hand, she set forth for the world of work, eventually landing a job with a large New York publisher as an assistant editor. Her authors ranked among the best known of her time, and from the little that I know, she was respected in her work and enjoyed it immensely. Then, for reasons unknown, she left that world and followed a path much more to the liking of those who judge such things. She got married. How or why all of that came to be, I haven't a clue. I do know that my mother's relationship to my father lasted only long enough for my conception and birth, and then she was on her own again. Being on her own was not to be equated with being alone, for in fact she had a large circle of women friends, and I suppose some men friends as well, although they were never much in evidence. Mother and her friends maintained close contact year-round, but the center of their relatedness was in Maine, where she and I spent all of our summers. My mother's main house was her special world, populated exclusively by women. Although it was a strange world for a small boy to grow up in, it was fascinating in a variety of ways, most of which were related to my mother's friends and guests. Over the summers, there was a succession of extraordinary women, concert pianists, world-class athletes, folks from the world of business and academia. The conversation was civil and urbane, often joyful, and sometimes rational to a fault. And for sure, it bore no relationship to the stereotypical image of the empty-headed woman lamented by Henry Higgins. It seemed idyllic to me then, and in retrospect it appears as a feminine retreat, an isolated place, and time where being female was no disadvantage. Maine was a special place, but more interesting for our uh, present discussion were my mother's operations in the larger world. Although she never returned to work in a traditional sense, she was not without a lengthy list of good things to be done. Red Cross drives to organize, blood donor campaigns, fundraising events for the symphony orchestra, and church activities. Actually, her priorities were, in order of importance, the church and a few other things. Like many women before her and since, my mother discovered the church as a place where she could use her considerable talents. But unlike a lot of those women, she refused to remain in that narrow area known as woman's work. In fact, she demonstrated a disconcerting tendency for showing up in any number of places clearly labeled men only, particularly the vestry. The vestry was the governing body of the local ep Episcopal Church, and for as long as anyone could remember, it had been the private preserve of men, so much so that vestry and vestrymen were synonymous. My mother changed all that. She became the first vestry person. I had many opportunities to watch my mother in operation, but how she did what she did as well as she did remained a mystery to me for some time. There was no question that she was effective and that the things she set her sights on largely came to pass, but how she pulled it off escaped me. When she conversed with her male peers and colleagues, it sometimes seemed to me that she had totally lost her capacity for reason. She would begin at one point, leap to another, fall into inexplicable silence, only to reemerge from a totally unpredictable and apparently unrelated quarter. At times, she appeared to be the quintessential scatterbrained woman. Yet I knew this lady to be the same one who could pursue a topic with single-minded rationality among her friends in Maine. But what I first took to be an obvious lapse of sense later emerged as careful strategy. My mother knew what she was doing. Although she was never afraid to lead, 
in the traditional sense of that word, she also had a clear sense of her own limitations and endurance. Practically, this meant that she was constantly identifying co-leaders and incessantly passing the ball off to them. Just about the time that the opposition, usually male, figured out who the leader was, all that would change. What I took to be scattershot thinking turned out to be my mother's way of playing the field. Although she was quite capable of going to the heart of an argument, she would rarely take the frontal assault. Rather, she would bounce ideas and comments around all the periphery until she had defined the field upon which she wanted to play and given it a context to her own liking. Only then would she start to draw the knot. As a strategy, it was marvelous. Those who opposed her rarely knew where she was going until she got there, and then it was too late. Not only was the die cast by that time, but more often than not, the opposition was thoroughly neutralized. Never opposing the other side directly gave my mother the space to affect alliances and isolate detractors. She knew all about not opposing force with force. Above everything else, my mother was a lady. Not that she was just nice or proper, although she was certainly both of these, but rather she gave deep meaning to the words honor and respect. No matter what side of an issue you might be on, and particularly if you were on the side opposite to her own, you were treated well. Doubtless, I have idealized a most important person, and certainly I can re recollect those times that my mother was less than perfect, even petty or manipulative. But through it all came a fundamental honor and respect that more than redeemed the nastier parts. This aspect of my mother's strategy and character became obvious in a number of ways, but most particularly when she gave a small party. Crowds of people in the noisy party scene were not my mother's cup of tea. But for friends, and especially for colleagues when she wanted to get something done, a small gathering, informally but exquisitely architected, was the chosen field of play. No speeches, no dramatic appeals to recalcitrant opponents' better nature, nor charismatic summoning of the troops, just infinite attention to the details of making guests feel comfortable, honored, and respected. As a witness, and sometimes butler to such occasions, I confess to a certain mystification as to how it all worked. A quiet word here, a fresh drink there, gentle corralling of complimentary conversationalists into an eddy of the party's flow. Mother didn't, my mother didn't like to dance, but she surely knew how to affect the magical movement of genuine communication. Call it what you will, I can only call it leadership. A son's remembrances of his mother can scarcely qualify as objective reporting, yet I have seen the patterns and approaches manifested by my mother practiced by other ladies of a certain age. Too old to be part of, and possibly comfortable with, the women's movement of recent years, and too young to have participated in the suffragette marches, they nonetheless evidenced a style and power of leadership from which I think we can learn much. On the outside of formal power, they held enormous power to affect the changes they held to be important. Their mode of operation was not the standard pattern. They gained power by giving it away, competed by cooperating, rarely if ever opposed force with force, played the whole field with an acute sense of the dance, and above all, honored and respected everybody, especially their opponents. In a day when confrontational, charismatic, and directive leadership is often idolized in its absence, it may well be that this loss is not to be lamented. Useful alternatives are available. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel 
for more exciting content.